chapter 2, John's Gospel, says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his mother said unto him, uh, the servants, Whatever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two to three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Capernaum he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, they continued there not many days. So we have this first of Jesus' miracles. A lot of people look into this passage, no doubt, with interest because they're trying to figure out, first of all, if they're legalistic, he couldn't have made wine. I mean, because grape juice. He didn't make wine. You know he didn't make wine, Justin. So if you're a legalist, I understand what side you're going to stand on. And if you're a liberal, you're a carnal, you're going to say, he made wine. I can drink wine. Jesus made wine. See all those legalists on the other side of the sanctuary. You know, this is my excuse to drink wine because he made wine. And that's as deep as you go in the story. Sad. We'll pray for you. You know, <laughs> we'll pray for you. Because there's way more here. It says this is the first of miracles, verse 11. John uses the word Simeon, which is signs. He never uses the word miracles the way the other gospel writers do. In chapter 20, he said, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you might have life through his name. When we go through the Gospels, we read about miracles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's normally dunamis there. The idea is the demonstration of power. Acts 2.22 tells us about that. His life was characterized by acts of power and so forth. There are other places where what he does are called signs and wonders, 
They're called wonders because that reflects the effect on the people that see the miracle. So they're called wonders there. I think John uses that word once in chapter 4. But John, 17 times in his gospel, he uses the word signs. Never miracles, never power, always signs. Now it's translated miracle 13 times. But John is always giving us signs And the miraculous things that Jesus did, he builds them around seven specific signs. And John calls them signs because a sign preaches. A sign is a sermon. It's nothing in and of itself, but it always speaks of something greater. And it tells us here, this is the first of Jesus' signs. And you think, you know, if we picked his signs, what would be the first one we picked? If we are going to introduce Jesus and his power, his majesty, his miraculous work, what would be the first thing we'd put on, you know, the list? Would it be the feeding of the 5,000? Would it be the raising of Lazarus from the dead? Uh, You know, would it be rebuking the wind and the sea? Um, What would you put first on the list? It's just so interesting. The first thing that comes before us is something that only Mary and the disciples and the servants realize has taken place. The first thing we see here is Jesus bidden to a wedding in a peasant's home in Cana of Galilee. And there is where his first sign is manifest. The sign is not interpreted who can drink and who can't drink. The sign is way broader and way more marvelous than that. And if that's the carnal level we go to to interpret this, that's a shame, really, because there's much more here in front of us. Interesting, the first verse says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was called, he was invited, and his disciples to the marriage. So this is the third day. Look, uh, interesting, it's not the third day from the first day we have mentioned in chapter 1, because the fourth day Nathaniel and Philip are called. So this seems the third day after the fourth day. Clearly, most scholars agree, this is the seventh day in the first week of his public ministry. And how wonderful on the seventh day, there's a wedding, there's a marriage. It's a picture of history, 6,000 years of trouble. And then finally, the wedding, the millennium, the day of rest, the marriage. And here, Jesus comes now to Cana. Now, it says his mother Mary is there. There's no mention of Joseph. So it seems he's passed off the scene by now. And it says the mother of Jesus. John the Apostle never mentions her name in his gospel, never calls her Mary. It's always the mother of our Lord or the mother of Jesus. That's because by the time he writes 90 AD, there were already starting to be heresies about Mary. Jesus is going to say, woman, what do I have to do with you? That's not harsh. We'll talk about it. But the idea is he knows Mary's going to be venerated. Mary is going to be, today in Rome, she's the co-redemptress. They have Jesus nailed to one side of the cross, Mary nailed to the other side of the cross. 
you know, they tell people, if you want to get to Jesus, go to his mom, because his mom can wear him down. You know, you go to her, and then she talks to him. You know, all of this crazy stuff. Now, John has a sense of it. At 90 AD, things are getting off track, and Jesus knows what's coming, obviously. He comes to this wedding knowing what he's going to do there before Mary asks him. And it's the third day after Nathaniel, and he comes to this small town in Cana. You know, interesting. Um, he had come to be with people. You know, he's, he's at, a, at a home. Does Nathaniel, who's from Cana, know these people? Cana is only a few miles from Nazareth, where he grew up. Had they known Mary and Joseph, he was the carpenter. He may have done work for them. Had, he known, had they known Jesus since he was growing up? It seems that Mary's involved in the care of the wedding. Are they personal friends with the family? We're not given the specific details, but it says there at this wedding, Mary is there at this marriage in Cana of Galilee, the mother of Jesus. And both Jesus was invited, he wants to tell us that, and his disciples, that's remarkable because he'd only called them in the last week. They're invited there. And then it tells us when they wanted wine, now the they is not Jesus and his disciples, and the wanted is not wanted. Man, I want some more wine. When they wanted wine, the word wanted there is lacking. When the wine was lacking, they were starting to run out of wine. Jesus, you know, Mary then goes to him and says, they have no wine. They're starting to run out. Understand in this culture, hospitality is a sacred duty. In fact, here at this time, it was the father and mother's responsibility, the father and mother of the groom, to provide for the feast. The feast would last seven days. The father, the parents would arrange the marriage. Uh, you know, they arrange your marriage quite often when you were little. If you grew up and the guy looked like Frankenstein by then, it was too bad. But the marriage was arranged. And if you end up loving the person, that was gravy on top of it. And then there was an espousal period where papers were signed. Then for a year, you didn't live together. It was two months to a year. The parents would chaperone when the couple spending time together. But at that point, if you were sexually active with somebody else, it was adultery. At that point, if you wanted to separate it, you needed a divorce. They were considered married, but the marriage ceremony itself, when the, when the groom comes for the bride and the groomsmen blow the trumpet and say, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, all of it a beautiful picture. And then the bride is taken to the father's house where the groom has prepared a place there. In addition, we're going to get to John 14. In my father's house are many mansions. I've gone to prepare a place for you. Where's the bride? He'll take us there. And then there was a feast for seven days. While the bride was hid away, uh, the, the groom would come out from time to time and fellowship with the people that are there. But if the wine ran out, that was considered humiliating. It was considered an offense. In fact, in the ancient Jewish writings, we found their legal action could be taken. If you went to a marriage reception, seven days, and they ran out of food or wine, you could bring legal action against the father and mother. I mean, that's how serious it was. 
So Mary, evidently knowing the family, we don't know if Jesus does, she comes. There's humiliation here. This is going to be humiliating. Their reputation, they're they're running out of wine, she says to him. Now, why why did she do that? He hadn't, you know, there's all these, you know, myths about the childhood miracles of Jesus. There's none of that anywhere in the Bible. This is the first miracle that he performs. It tells us right here. Mary, you think, you know, from the time Gabriel came to her, you think the things that were in her heart, that that which is conceived of thee is the Holy Spirit. He's going to sit on the throne of his father David, of his kingdom. There's going to be no end. These things had always been there. She goes to her cousin Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist. We hear her first talking to an angel, first time we hear her. Then we hear the Magnificat. You know, we see her there in the fields of Bethlehem when the shepherds come and tell her everything that's happened. It says Mary hid all of these things in her heart. She comes to the temple of 40 days to dedicate him with Joseph. Simeon is there. Anna is there. All of these things had added up, and Mary had kept these things in her heart. Who is this child? You know, who, you know, he's going to sit on the throne of his father David. And all the rumors that she got pregnant outside of wedlock, all of that is, is, is around her all of those years. But she could have spent 30 years in a carpenter shop with this young man and not seen things about him that had warmed her, warmed her heart and had ministered to her to such a degree. And she had longed for the day when he finally was going to step forward. Now, no doubt, she hears about the baptism of John the Baptist. She hears what's happened. She hears about the 40 days in the wilderness. She hears when he comes back, John the Baptist is saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. No doubt she's heard of Nathaniel's involved from Cana, that Jesus now is calling disciples. Some of them are leaving John the Baptist and following him. And she sees him there sitting at the table with his disciples. She knows the wine is running out. And she goes to him and says, Josh, they're running out of wine. You've got disciples now. You know, is your public ministry, can you do something about this, you know? And he says, woman, what is there between you and I? My hour is not yet come. Now, it isn't harsh. It isn't cold. Um, it's his mother. It's the same word woman he uses from the cross when he says, woman, behold thy son. He says to John, behold thy mother. There's no harshness from the cross. It's an endearing term. But he says, woman, what is there in in regards to this miracle? He was going to do it. He knew it when he came there. But the idea is this is not your purpose. You're not initiating this. What is there between you and I in this? I have an hour. There's... Four times in John's gospel where he says, my hour is not yet come. There are three times when he says, my hour has come. The last time he says it, John 17, 1, he says, Father, my hour has come. Here he says, Mother, my hour has not come. It's really beautiful. It's interesting. And just like a mom, she says, whatever he says, do it. You know, 
what, what is there, woman? What is there? This is you. You just think this is my business that you're going to come and start my public ministry? What is there between you and I? My hour has not come. Whatever he says, do it. Now this is really interesting because this is the fourth time we hear her voice, and the last time we hear her voice in the Bible. The first time we hear Mary, she's talking to Gabriel. How can this be, seeing I know not a man? Second time we hear her voice in the home of Zachariah and Elizabeth when Zachariah is pregnant with John the Baptist, the Magnificat, this incredible biblical, scriptural, rich thing pours out of her heart. The time after that we hear her voice is when her and Joseph lose track of Jesus, have to go back, and they find him in the temple. She says, didn't you know your father and I, we've been looking for you. And he says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And this is the last time we hear Mary's voice in the Bible. And it's this. Whatever he says to you, do it. She doesn't say, come to me and I'll wear him down. Right? This is very deliberate. Mary would say the same thing to us this morning. Study the Bible. Go to fellowship. Enjoy all of these things. But whatever he says to you, do it. Don't talk about it. Don't argue about it. Don't theologize it. Do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. It's so healthy for me to sit alone. And it's not Mary, obviously, anymore, but the Holy Spirit. Studying the Word or sitting alone, if I'm stressed, if there's somebody under my skin, those things are going on to hear that voice, whatever he says. Whatever he says, do it. That's the center of all of our Bible study and all of our worship and the reason we come together. It's the center of everything. He's our Lord and our Savior. Whatever he says, do it. How wonderful to hear that from Mary in this circumstance here that's brought before us. And there were set there six water pots of stone. Now, John is writing 90 AD, mostly a Gentile audience. So he says, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two to three firkins apiece. So there's over 100 gallons of water here. There's just no way to avoid that. Does he make 100 gallons of wine? It doesn't say that. It says the water pots are there. They were no doubt by an entranceway somehow because when you would come in, your feet were washed. That was common courtesy. They never ate without washing their hands. We see the the Pharisees and scribes come after Jesus. Why do your disciples eat without with unwashed hands? This was courtesy of the day, to have your feet washed by the servants when you came to the home, hands washed. So there's six of these water pots uh, each of them holding so many gallons together, somewhere between 100, 140 gallons probably of water. Now, it's because the feast was seven days long. Uh, you know, if, if this is the fourth day or fifth day, they're running out of wine, whatever it might be. But it's setting the stage for a sign. It's not t- just turning water into wine. There's a sign here. Something being said. 
Moses, the lawgiver, he had said to us that the law, chapter 117, law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The first miracle of the lawgiver was turning water to blood. The first miracle the lawgiver did was turn water to blood. The first miracle the Savior did was turn water to wine, to bring joy, to save face, to take away humiliation. And it's an incredible picture that's set before us. There are these six stone, because the Jews didn't believe stone, unlike clay, would pollute the water. It kept it was clean. This is for purification. How how remarkable these stone containers seem to be empty or depleted for purification. But the gospel, you know, you can't put old wine and New, new wine and old skins. You know, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. There's all of these pictures through John's gospel. And here are these empty stone containers for purification. They're empty. And Jesus is not going to fill them with the water of legalism. He fills them with the, the, the wine of the gospel. This, this picture is just incredible. It's filled with so much. So it says here, his mom said, whatever he says, do it. So there were six water pots there of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing two to three firkins apiece. And Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up, notice, to the brim. So there's no, nobody's going to say, oh, it's half wine, half water. No, they're filled with water to the brim, it says. And he said unto them, the servants, it says, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. So the, the interesting, there's interesting questions around this. There's six water pots now filled with water to the brim. Do they all turn into wine? doesn't say. In fact, it doesn't say that there was wine in the first water pot. It's, he says, bear it, and somewhere between when he dimps the water out and the label and he gets to the governor of the feast, it changes on the way in his obedience. Then every time do they go back, is it water? When they pour it out, does it become wine? Do they only use two pots of wine, and was there still four pots of water left over? You know, because all the people who want Jesus turn the water into wine so they can drink... Let me tell you something. Jesus is not, you know, it says the, 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 the people there are well drunk. This is not saying they're already pickled and Jesus makes them 120 more gallons of wine. You know, you go through the Bible and it says, it says we should consider our brother. We shouldn't stumble him. It says we should show the right consideration to others. It says drunkenness is a sin. It's a mocker through the Bible. So Jesus, who wrote the Bible, is not here saying, yeah, they're half pickled, let's make 120 more gallons of wine, see how they end up. No, that's not what's happening here. And look, the, the interesting thing is he's in this common, he sanctifies the common social experiences of life. It's at a wedding where he does his first 
miracle, as it is many times today. Husbands, wives, have you invited Jesus into your marriage? The Bible says that threefold cord is not quickly broken. Husbands, if you will be his husband, not hers, his husband in the marriage, he gives you your role, things are way better. Wives, if you'll be his wife in the marriage instead of that guy's wife, the marriage will be vastly different. It's an issue of lordship. Marriage problems are lordship problems. Are we letting Jesus, husbands, wives, be the Lord of our lives? Have we invited him in wisdom, cries aloud in the streets? He's invited here. He tells them what to do. And he speeds up a natural process. Listen, this is a miracle. He tells us that. It's a sign. But we're surrounded with those things. Every vineyard, every year, all around the world, turns water to wine. The rain and the dew come through the roots of the the vine, of the plant. And the flowers and the blossoms, the grapes come, and the skin turns a dark purple. And every year there's a process for that to take place, and it happens all around us. Every year the grain comes and it grows, the seed is sown, it grows, produces bread. Every day the the Sea of Galilee was filled with fish. When he deals out the five loaves and the two fish, there was a miracle for for five loaves and two fish to be there. There was a miracle. Around us all the time in common day life, there are miracles. If we're willing to slow down, if we're willing to see it, if you're willing to look at your kids and your grandkids, you're willing to to look at your face in the mirror and and what an eye can do, what an ear can do, what the miracles that surround us every day in our life. Romans 1 talks about the creation that it speaks of the eternal power and, and the Godhead. It tells us there's something divine. There's a creator. The more you dig into it, now with microscopes and telescopes and electron microscopes, the more we dig into it today, the louder it speaks. It's all around us. What Jesus does is he takes the process from rain through the season to the grape, and he does it in a minute. This is divine wine. Jesus made wine. Well, let me ask you a question. Can you get drunk from this wine? It's heavenly wine. Can you get drunk... Did he make the wine and then speed up the process of fermentation too? That's a process of breaking down and rotting. Did he do that? I don't think so. When he gave out the loaves and the fishes, he didn't give out moldy bread and rotten fish. He turns the water to wine here, and it's the best wine this guy ever tasted. I guarantee you this wine didn't make anybody drunk. This wine made people healthy. This wine was the best tasted. You just, when we, what's the vintage going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb when we get there? When you're not an invited guest, you're the bride. 
What will that be like? People always say, well, I want to be like Jesus, and he drank wine. Yeah, well, why don't you imitate everything else in his life and then come back and tell me about that one? <laughs> and if you want to imitate him, in Luke chapter 22, he said, henceforth, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine till I drink it anew in my father's kingdom. So he's a teetotaler right now. If you want to be like him, you ain't drinking until we get there. When we get to heaven, he gives me wine. I'm drinking wine. I'm good with it then. When he puts it, when he gives it to me, I'm in. Now you can say, well, it's not a sin. I can't say it's a sin for you to have a glass of wine at the dinner table. The New Testament doesn't teach that. It's a sin for me. It's a sin for me to take the money you put in the offering, which is a sacred trust, and spend it at the state store and buy liquor with it. And for the rest of the pastors, as far as I'm concerned. We're to set an example. We're not to stumble. We're told this in 1 Corinthians. It says, Take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Again, he says, All things are lawful, for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. Whether therefore you eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans 14 says we shouldn't stumble. We should, what we eat, what we drink should never stumble somebody else. Every person in America that takes the first drink, one out of 14 become an alcoholic. Would you, if you had play Russian roulette with 14 chambers and one bullet, how long would you play that game? So, look, we're to edify one another, encourage one another. Jesus is not giving out alcohol to a whole group of people that are already pickled. I think I'll give them 120 more gallons of wine. That's not what's happening here. And understand this. Drinking... In Galilee, it was not the same as drinking in Philadelphia, okay? You need to get that straight, you know? They, they used three parts water, one part wine. It wasn't about what it is about now. And I just don't believe the wine that he made was inebriating. You know, because he warns all through the Bible about men losing their senses. So somewhere between the pot, the water part, and the, and the governor of the feast in this ladle... This changes from water to wine. It says, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not, he didn't know where it was from. Take note, please. It says, but the servants which drew the water knew the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. As you go through John's gospel, it's interesting. The servants know. When the 12 disciples are helping Jesus feed the multitude, they're going up. They know there's two, two loaves and three fish, three loaves and two fish at the top of the mountain. Everybody else doesn't know that. They're, you know, giving out 5,000 men plus women and children. 10,000 people are eating. They're sat out in, in groups and they're, they're running down. They keep seeing each other going up saying, do you believe that? And he's up there breaking the same fish and the same bread. Those that are the servants that are involved often get to see the miracle. Roll away the stone. Those that were there who rolled the stone away saw Lazarus come out. Sometimes, you know, we think Jesus is asking us to do the most menial of things. 
But how often is it that the servant, the one who says, yes, Lord, is the one who actually sees, who knows what work is going to begin when he asks you to do something. Mary would say whatever he says, do it. And what miracle might you end up in the middle of? You carry a ladle. You give a cup of cold water to a disciple. What miracle might we end up in? We can never minimize just to write a card or visit somebody in the hospital or do the most common of things to pray for someone, to show kindness. And so often it is his servants. Everybody else doesn't know what's going on. But his servants get to see something. It says the servants knew that was what was going on. And when the governor tasted this wine, he called for the bridegroom. Now, it's interesting. Everywhere in the Gospels, the term bridegroom is used. It's always parabolic. It's always a parable. This is the only place in the Gospels where this is a literal bridegroom at a literal wedding. And he calls for the bridegroom here to come. Now, the bridegroom's parents were the ones who were funding this seven-day shindig. They're the ones who were were getting caught with things. We don't know if the bridegroom knew the wine was running out. They didn't tell him because they didn't want him to be embarrassed. But this guy who's the head of the feast calls for the bridegroom, and he says this, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, doesn't say they get drunk, they're well drunk, then that which is worse, the, the, the less valuable, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. And as far as the, the good, the word there is, is beautiful, good. Uh, it has the idea of good, but it has the idea of good morally as well. Jesus has made good wine. It's not destructive wine. He's made good wine, and it says here, and you save the best for last. This person's amazed because they say, you know, you go to these shindigs, and they put out the good stuff first, and after everybody's uh, kind of, you know, involved, then they put out the cheaper stuff when nobody's tasting it anymore. But you've saved the best for last. Jesus, you work so different than the world. Satan always offers the good wine up front. And when people are intoxicated with that, he puts out the poison. Are you transgressing him today? Is sexual substance abuse? Do you know, twice in the paper this week, It said the leading cause of death in America between 15 and 44 is fentanyl. Not COVID. Fentanyl, which is coming from China, by the way. Free information. Leading cause of death in America is indulging in substance abuse. Leading cause of death. So if you're out doing those things, indulging, Enjoy it, because it's the best you'll ever have. It goes downhill from there. You think you're doing something now, feels good? There's the heart is hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. doesn't say sin's not pleasurable. Moses turned away from the pleasures of sin for a season because he considered the reproach of Christ better. 
Sin is there. Sin feels good. That's why we get involved. Nobody tells you don't chew on carpet tacks. <laughs> it hurts. Who would do that? But the Bible has to say don't sin. Don't sin. Because you get drunk with it. And you'll end up doing things in the long run you never thought you would do up front. Once you start to indulge. The secret is whatever he says. Do it. Do it. Because if you choose your sin now, your pleasure now, it's the best you'll ever have. So enjoy it while you got it. Because in the kingdom of God, he saves the best for last. You think you enjoy coming to church now when we're all singing? Sometimes it's just great. Everybody's worshiping. You think that's good? You ain't seen nothing yet. Right? You, you, think it's, you think it's amazing to see the sanctuary filled? You ain't seen nothing yet. You think it's great when you wake up in the morning and you feel, I feel pretty good today, even at my age. You ain't seen nothing yet. Where do you put those new bodies on? You, you like to drive around and see houses lit up with Christmas lights? You ain't seen nothing yet. Where do you see that city? You know, just he saved the best for last. He saved the best for last. It's our blessed hope. It calls us forward. The marriage supper of the Lamb is there. And this first sign in Cana of Galilee, it's a sign. It speaks of something greater. The law and the empty water pots are passing away. The, the new wine of the kingdom has come. The, the time of the law turning water to blood is gone. And the time of the gospel turning water to joy has come now in our lives. And the first place he decides to do this miracle is at a wedding. It's at a wedding. You know, it's interesting. In the end of chapter 1, if you remember, he said to Nathaniel, before Philip called you and you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus said, because I said I saw you under the fig tree. You believe this? You're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Very significant. Nathaniel said, you're the son of God. He said, no, I'm the son of man. It was his delight to put on flesh, Emmanuel, walk with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. No man hath at any time seen God, but the only Son, he has exposited him. He's placed him before us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Almighty God sitting at a wedding table with human beings. He sat at the table with them. He looked into their face. He broke bread with them. Almighty God. He wept at their gravesites. He hungered. He was weary. And he begins 
his public ministry, which changed the world in a peasant's home in Galilee, at a wedding, sitting at a table, sitting at a table. And it's there that he first manifests forth his glory. Warren Wiersbe tells a story all the time about a friend of his that worked in the mines. He was a miner and uh, coal mine, I believe. And he was a drunkard. He was an alcoholic, ruined his family, ruined his home. But he had a dramatic conversion and was saved. And uh, his fellow workers just constantly gave him a hard time. They would not leave him alone. And one of them finally said, you mean to tell me you believe that Jesus turned water into wine? He said, yeah. He said, that's a miracle. He said, you believe in miracles? He said, yeah, my house, I've turned, I've seen God turn wine into furniture and into clothing for my children and to food that was not on the table before. <laughs> yeah. He's doing miracles. He's all around us today. Are our eyes open to see it? And then usually the ones who get to see it are the ones who serve. How do I serve? Whatever he says, do it. Not me, not Calvary Chapel, not your spouse, not your kids, not your friends, not your pastor. Whatever he says. He paid that price on the cross so you and I could have open fellowship with Almighty God again. Whatever he says, first sign in his line of miracles. Parking of that day, the marriage supper of the Lamb. He has saved the best for last. Now he is shepherding us through life's experiences. And the best advice his mom could give us is whatever he says, do it. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you today, and uh, we thank you for this. Lord, there's so many angles, so much depth, so much beauty, so many things taking place in this scene, so many angles, Lord, so many facets to it, so many personalities, so many questions, Lord, so much wonder, Lord. We thank you for the beauty of it and for the depth of it, Lord. We lift our hearts and our minds, Lord, to you today, and Lord, let that ring in our hearts, Lord, this new season, Lord, this time we're living in when the world is falling apart, Lord, let us remember you've saved the best for last. And Lord, as we ponder our journey and how to move forward every day, Lord, let us remember that whatever you say, Lord, we can do. You wouldn't say it if we couldn't do it. Let that be, Lord on our heart whatever he says let it be on mine whatever he says do it thank you Lord for these things Lord Jesus we pray in your name and for your glory Amen